The choices we make with words or visuals can either engage or alienate an audience. It is now imperative for brands and companies to consider whether their communications reflect the whole of their audience. I'm your host, Nancy Anderson, and in this episode of the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast, we will examine the topic of inclusive communications, focusing on practical steps for infusing equity, respect, and a sense of belonging into the employee and customer experiences they create. Then, Stacy Gandler, Global Managing Director at Red Havas Health, joins us for the Red Questionnaire, where we ask the same questions to different guests to understand what inspires them and makes them tick. But first, we welcome Linda Descano, Executive Vice President at Red Havas US, who will guide today's roundtable conversation. With the new administration in the White House and a clear plan to elevate equity, diversity, and inclusion, we should expect these topics to stay in the forefront of public conversations and scrutiny over how brands and companies are putting the pledges they made in 2020 around DE&I, which we'll use for a shorthand, into action in 2021. So against this backdrop, our conversation today is going to focus on the tangible steps that brands can take to create more inclusive communications, whether they're for their internal audiences or for their customers and prospective customers. And when we talk about inclusion, we're really thinking about how do they reflect the whole of their audiences, whether it's race, gender, sexual orientation, sexual identity, age, body size, and so forth, in marketing, in advertising, and in their internal communications. And in doing so, are they communicating in a way that embodies their mission and their values? Joining me today for this conversation are three of my new friends and favorite people. Uh, We have Carmela Glover, who's president of Diversity Action Alliance, Brandy Boatner, manager of digital and advocacy communications at IBM, and my colleague at Havas, Sebastian Hudos, the chief strategy officer at BETC. Thank you all for joining us today. Really delighted to have you. Um, Carmela, I'm going to ask you to kick off our conversation. Um, You lead the Diversity Action Alliance, which is a coalition of public relations and communication leaders working to accelerate DE&I in our professional. And I want to start by asking you to define the concepts of diversity and inclusion, as well as equity and equality, because I find they often get conflated and confused. So would you kick us off? Sure, and thank you so much for for having me on today, Linda. And I'm a big fan of Brandy and Sebastian, so thank you. (laughs) Thank you all, I'm happy to be on this uh, virtual stage with you. So um, to start, diversity and inclusion. So I like to think of diversity as just the, if you think about the definition of the word, diversity really means difference or variety. Um, And so diversity just just talks about the actual makeup um, of our workplaces, of our, you know, schoolhouses. So just how many different types of people? Is it a homogenous group or is every, you know, does everybody look different and come from different backgrounds? So that is what diversity is. Inclusion is when you have a diversity of people, Um, do they all feel like they belong, like they are valued, like their their input matters? Um, And does it actually matter? Not just do they feel that way, uh, but are you considering all perspectives? That's what inclusion is. 
And um, I'm glad that you asked about equity and equality <laughs> because equity and equality often get used interchangeably, but are very different. And so uh, I like to explain it the way I would explain it to, um, to some of, of, of my students. And that's that equity uh, is giving giving everyone the tools they need to succeed. And not everyone needs the same tools, right? Uh, equality means giving everybody the same thing. And not everybody can succeed with all the same tools, right? So <laughs> the way I like to explain it is in, in the context of people, um, people with disabilities. If you are working at a, um, let's say for example, you're working at a workplace that says everybody has the same opportunity that if you meet your sales goal, you get to sit on the fifth floor in the penthouse that's made of all windows and have a great view, uh, but you've got to get up there and there's only stairs, right? But you have employees who, are, um, who identify as people with disabilities who can't walk up the stairs and need an elevator. So it doesn't matter if they all have the same equality in that if they meet their sales goal, they can sit on the fifth floor if they don't have the tools to get to the fifth floor. And that's how I like to explain equity. Um, there's also a really good visual picture that, you know, folks want to Google it. There's a visual picture of um, three people at a baseball game who are standing next to the fence and uh, they want to see into the baseball game, but one is really short. They've all got the same size stool. So that's a good way to visually, visually um, understand what equity is. But uh, I like to use the, the, um, the penthouse <laughs> view example because it helps people to understand that you know it at least from um from that perspective what equity is and it looks very different depending on the aspect of diversity how equity impacts uh people's opportunities thank you for setting that up for us uh carmela so with that in mind then how would you define inclusive communication so how do we think about it in the context of you know diversity inclusion equity and equality well, I would say inclusive, and I welcome uh, Brandy and Sebastian to, to weigh in on this one too, but I would say inclusive communications means thinking about all of your stakeholders, which, which can be overwhelming, especially because our stakeholder groups are becoming increasingly complex. But being as, um, as open as possible um, and using as much neutral language as possible, clear, concise, um, language that, uh, that maybe you run by a few of your um, your diverse colleagues um, from all different backgrounds, just to make sure that there's nothing in there that's offensive. So inclusive communications means something that will not make anyone feel offended or excluded. Um, and it actually takes a lot of care. I would say inclusive communications is really, it, it actually takes care and thought and, and deliberate um, language, which means it's not just writing up what the position of the organization is or or what the campaign tone or topic is. It means really thinking about who is our audience uh, because your audience may be a, an interesting cross-section of people and how do we make sure that our uh, words are resonating with all of our audiences. And I would say inclusive communications, um, the way we think about it is you know, from, it's almost like in a broadcast fashion where we are talking um, or communicating one way, but inclusive communications is really also about listening. That's what's really important. That's such a great point, because all too often we think about the messages we are pushing out without thinking about how they will be received, but also the feedback. What should we be like listening for and building that and anticipating that type of feedback? And how are we 
sense checking, right? Those communications and are we doing that in a, in a thoughtful way and in a way that enables us to be as inclusive as, as possible. So Brandy, I wanna to come to you because your portfolio at IBM includes managing advocacy communications. And you've talked extensively to the PR and communications industry about the importance of brands being more, you, you've used a phrase, socially thoughtful, um, that you know as brands position themselves in a way that creates a sense of belonging. So I'd love to hear from you with your brand hat on, you know, what are some of the, the factors that can help or that can hinder inclusivity in a communications and the creative process, whether you're talking to your, your colleagues internally or to your external audiences? Absolutely. And thank you so much, Linda, for the opportunity. And I am also a big fan of Carmela and Sebastian. So <laughs> just to add to what Carmela mentioned about inclusive communications, when you, like I said, you, you mentioned, I said, you know, socially thoughtful organizations today and in the, you know, the DE&I landscape have to really, what I say, post with purpose we are all doubling down on brand purpose and your posts have to, you can't just issue uh, a shallow statement of support. There has to be tangible actions that you are taking. Um, it's great to give a commitment. It's even better to have an action that supports that commitment 10 times over. So really thinking about being purposeful and you know action oriented. I think interesting what Car uh, Carmelo was saying around inclusive communications is intention. You have we have got to be much more intentional uh, than we have. And even within advocacy communication, what we advocate for, what employees advocate for, what we as a brand advocate for has to be intentional. It needs to be very impactful. Um, I think something that brands um, organizations, stakeholders need to really, you know, think through is not the what, what are we going to say? What's, what's our position here? What, what's our stance on X? It really is why, why are we saying what we're saying? Why are we advocating for a certain position? Why are we saying that we stand with this community who is hurting, who is in pain, who is going through something awful. We are doing it because it's the right thing to do, but also because we foster inclusion at every point, every point. And we're an organization that will speak up and speak out against injustice and against inequality and against you know any violation of human rights. I think Brands need to really think about that. And it's, a, it's an exciting time, I think, in DE&I for communication professionals and for us, because there's this emerging you know, area within communications around advocacy, around social justice, that someone may have said maybe a year ago, oh, advocacy, that's like an HR thing. You want HR, they can focus on that or social justice, maybe that falls in corporate social responsibility, or no, the communications function, we can provide advice and counsel on, again, not so much the what in the messages, the why, why are we saying this? How are we communicating to our employees? How are we communicating to external stakeholders? 
So I think it's just opportunity for us, you know, to do what we do best as communicators and, you know, and, and going back to what I said around hosting with purpose. Now you, you make such a good point because you're absolutely right. I mean, this, the, while audiences and, and customers have been rallying around purpose before the pandemic, the events of the past year between the pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement, the refocus on, on inequity, right, and injustice in so many communities has really put business front and center. And in many cases, the vacuum created, at least in the US from government inaction, um, communities turn to businesses as, as, as leaders and as to help solve and address some of these challenges. But businesses also have to be right very conscious of, yes, you can weigh in on these issues, but if what you're saying doesn't align with what you're doing externally, but also internally, mm -hmm. you're no longer going to get a pass that the communities, internal and external, are, are going to hold you accountable for your actions. And you know you have to fix your own house. So be thoughtful to your point, um, Brandy, about what you're going to speak about and know your story and at least talk about it in a way that's authentic and honest to where you are, because we know some of the pledges are aspirational and it takes work to get there, but talk about the work that you're doing um, and not just talk about the aspiration without you know, addressing you know, the, the, the different steps and how you're navigating um, that path. Um, Sebastian, uh, Carmela, anything to build on what Brandy has said? Yeah, I would just say, you know, inclusive communications really starts, especially for us as communicators, starts internally, starts with being an exemplar of in inclusive communication. We often fall into norms, especially at work, where we're using phrases that may have previously been acceptable or we may not have known about, but I think not knowing is not an excuse anymore. So, you know, using some of those, those common words like, oh, well, that's crazy. You know, you might offend someone who's got a mental health issue or, you know, that's lame, or let's have a powwow. You know, these are, um, these are you know, words that are offensive to some and, it, and we can no longer say, especially as communicators who are expected to do the research and fully understand all of their audiences, we have to get rid of those, um, those offensive terminologies and that language that's exclusive. Um, even in our internal meetings where there's nobody else but a bunch of communicators sitting around the table. Um, because okay. it, it has to no longer be our norm. Right. We have to model the behavior um, that we want our colleagues, right? The businesses we support, the brands we bring to market. If if we don't start with each, you know, ourselves holding ourselves accountable and building our self-awareness, we're not going to be able to deliver the messages on behalf of you know, the executives and the brands that all of us support. So, you know, um, Brandy, I'm curious within IBM, you know, are there steps that you are taking to tackle bias, you know, in a very practical way among the communications and, you know, maybe navigate the Karens that exist because they exist everywhere, not just, you know, in the amorphous external world, you know, how are you bringing this to life so everyone working in communications, but on the business side too, are just more aware? 
Absolutely. So I can't say that we're necessarily tackling the Karens in the organization because that's like a whole separate, that's a whole separate podcast. <laughs> but in I won't come of, back to you on that. <laughs> in terms of um, going back to the actions and the steps that we're taking. So um, IBM, a subset of our diversity and inclusion strategy uh, is a, a campaign called Embrace. Um, and I lead communications for Embrace. And those are our social justice efforts around uh, systemic racism, combating uh, bias and discrimination um, and, and just, you know, again, how do we stand up and how do we show up um, as it relates to equality and equity that Carmela was talking about. And so under Embrace, we have four pillars of how we take our actions to actually do things um, in support. Um, we started Embrace started with the Black community, you know, we're in the process of scaling um, to the Asian community with what has happened most recently. Um, around um, Asian hate crimes and discrimination against Asians. But our four pillars of embrace um, are around representation and transparency. So back to your very point, Linda, about starting in-house and taking a look internally as to where we can improve and what can we be doing to drive engagement um, among specifically our Black community. But again, what's our representation number? So representation and transparency creating economic opportunity. So how are we looking at underserved communities and um, providing uh, exposure and access to um, STEM and to careers and to, you know, whether it's a career at IBM or, you know, career in general, how are we nurturing black and brown talent? So, you know, what, what does that entail? Then we have, you know, we're a technology company. So how are we leading in good tech? We look at a program that we started internally that has now become externally called Call for Code for Racial Justice for how technology can help combat uh, systemic racism. We know technology alone cannot eradicate racism, but it certainly can be part of the solution to help some of the systems that have been in place you know, that have been really perpetuating oppression. So how can developers um, and data scientists work on solutions to help combat racism. And then finally, um, our policy advocacy, our social justice policy advocacy, we have been, I mean, in the forefront around legislation as it relates to um, injustice and inequality. Uh, we were the only company, the only enterprise that helped advocate for the George Floyd policing bill. Um, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, has gone on record to say without companies like IBM, IBM has been with us, you know, since they announced that they were pulling out of facial recognition and, you know, programs and software that perpetuates bias. And so those four areas are how we are taking tangible action and steps to really showcase, okay, we as, as a company fully support, we have a culture of inclusion, but here are the actions like to, what you and Carmelo were saying about aspirational. Yeah, we've got goals, but here are the actions, things that we are doing, creating net new 1000 net new internships for students in black and brown communities. Um, our $100 million investment to historically black colleges and our first ever quantum centers at historically black colleges. Like we are, we are definitely taking the actions now, may not be the actions of like, oh, I'm gonna write a big check or, oh, I'm gonna give a Peloton bike but we are taking sustainable actions that have long lasting effects.
what I really like about what you're saying is you're also relevant to the business. So you're tying the actions or creating opportunities within the business. So, you know, you're, you're building and nurturing the pipeline of talent to create the representation that's not just for today, but how do you continue that representation, right? And really create the, uh, uh, an employee base that reflects all the different communities that, that you serve. So it's, it's very relevant and, and intrinsic, right? To what IBM does as, as a business. And I think that brings a level of authenticity. And, and you bring up another good point. I mean, right, there, there are organizations that will always need financial support, but looking at ways to engage the organization as a partner where it's bringing its knowledge, its expertise, its experience, right? Its platform to the table that could help elevate the conversation because it is an IBM talking about it. That really can be um, a key factor for, for change. So I wanna do a quick round table before we get to the topic of aging because I am a woman of a certain age and I have something to say about brand communications in this area. So I, this is my, my selfish point, but I'd love to hear from each of you. Is there a brand when it comes to inclusive communications that you, know, that you would say is really getting it right? That is, is doing the things that make sense and, and why? And yeah, I will also, I can, I can, I can give an example of a brand sure. that started. It's interesting, Linda, they started doing it wrong. They course corrected. Now they're doing it right. And I have even more respect for them now because they took accountability for when they were doing it wrong. And they were like, you know what? We messed up. This was, this was bad. We realize it was bad. We are going to do better. And now they are taking, I mean, action after action to do better. I'm going to use, and I'm here in New York, Linda, you know, Sephora. I love mm -hmm. Sephora. I spend way too much money in Sephora, but I just love it. It's like I'm a kid in a candy store between the makeup and the fragrances. And just, I just feel like brandy times a hundred when I'm in Sephora because it's just beauty. It just makes me feel so good. Sephora had an issue with not being inclusive, you know, with the products that they sold. So Carmela and I as black women, my skin tone is a little, you know, I have the melanin poppin. So there are certain things and certain shades with my color that I can and cannot wear, but I couldn't necessarily find that always in Sephora. And I just told you, I love Sephora, but I just, there aren't enough products that cater to me being a black woman or a woman of color. So someone called Sephora out on, on social media um, about why don't you have, you know, more products for women of color? Because we can't, you just can't assume everybody that comes in Sephora is white and they can just use everything. And you know what Sephora was like, okay, so someone just called us out. Is that true that we don't have a lot of inclusivity within our products and, you know, what we stock on our shelves? And then they realized they didn't. And then they realized even from the service reps, when you go into a Sephora, they didn't even have anybody trained who could help you if you were a woman of color, know what the right shade or what you needed. It wasn't even part of, they, they had no idea how to respond. So here I am a faithful Sephora user. You, you are just now admitted, you're not catering to me. You're not inclusive of all, you know, of all shades of women. They realized that 
they owned up to it. They were held accountable and they said, okay, we're going to fix it. When the events of last summer happened, Sephora was very quick to not only announce a statement of support, but then they made the commitment that it still holds true, even almost a year later, that 15% of their shelf space would go to Black-owned businesses. Black-owned businesses that create all kinds of product for Black and Brown women. That is still today. They also trained their service reps in inclusivity to be able to answer questions from any Sephora customer, regardless of skin tone, regardless of what you use. So now Sephora, again, not like so many people are going into a Sephora, but people, there are some people who are, but they took the wrong that they were doing once they were called out and they made it right and they continue to make it right. And I'm happy to see you know, Fenty Beauty. I am happy to see um, Honey Pot. I am happy to see a lot of black owned businesses that they, you know, that they sell that are on their shelf, but just an example of somebody who made, you know, who made it right. Great example. And I too am a Sephora fan and became much more of a consistent shopper after they made that commitment, because these are there. And these are not just great brands for women of color. These are great brands for all women, right? They elevate all women and they're amazing products. So celebrate the fact that these are some of the best products. Um, so really appreciate that. Carmela, Sebastian, examples that you want to highlight? Yeah, I mean, I was, first of all, I, I completely agree with your, you know, your Sephora anecdote. Um, and I think it's been, it's been for many years that, that women of color have had an issue going into the store and finding their right color and finding brands that were made with them in mind, you know? So I think that's an awesome example. I wanna, I'm gonna give two examples and uh, they're, they're less anecdotal than that, but um, I'm thinking about organizations who have been doing it for, you know, before it was the right thing to do, before it was popular, I mean, it was always the right thing to do, but before it was the popular thing to do, before events in the news called everyone's attention to it, right? And the two that I can think of, um, and I might be a little bit biased because I, you know, I worked at both of them, um, but could really feel the um, authentic spirit was Johnson & Johnson. They have a credo that starts with their consumers, with the doctors and the nurses. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just about our statements and our actions, which are, are really just coming to light now. You know, we're making statements in response to what's happening in the news um, and needing actions to support it but also aligning that to our value. So it's got to match the value of your organization. Every position is not for every organization, but J&J has always been committed to the consumer and you know, the end users of their product long before the stakeholder and long before the business roundtable came out and said they wanted to redefine the purpose of a corporation. Stakeholders were not necessarily um, the top of the, the priority list for J&J. And they made that very clear through, it's a compass statement, like their, their credo, their value statement. That's um, you know, you can find it posted all over their, their buildings. You can find it on their, on their website. Um, and then I would say Procter & Gamble has been doing it right for a very long time. They've been doing ongoing leadership trainings. And as opposed to doing uh, specific DE&I trainings, DE&I was infused as a part of their leadership training. You know, it's to be a good leader, um, you need to be an, inc an inclusive communicator, regardless of whether you work in communications or engineering, right? So you empowering their employees with that. Um, and of course, we know, you know, through Procter & Gamble's advertisement and the campaigns that they do, they have always been on 
um, on the side of humanity and of empathy and of just really resonating with all of their, their stakeholders and finding common ground as opposed to where we're different. Um, and when I was there, you know, I was in, I, I mean, my background is in chemical engineering. So I wasn't in communications at the time. I was in research and development. And we were always told when we were formulating new, new skincare products or, you know, when we were doing research about how to, to make them better, um, that we needed, to, we needed to think about the consumer first. That was our first thought, not what's going to be the cheapest way for us to uh, manufacture this skincare cream, not, um, you know, what's the you know, most scientifically correct way to go about this, but, but what does the consumer want? What is important to them? Consumer is boss. And in, you know, with that um, in mind, you, know, you automatically become a more inclusive organization because you're you could be considering somebody who's very different than you. Two great examples, and I, I love your focus on the consumer because that's really, you know, and it's not just the external consumer, right? Those of us who might work in a function, your, your consumer might be a partner in the business or in another part of the organization, but it's, it's always putting that end customer at the center and the forefront of everything you do. And if we, if we treat everyone as a customer, then you're bound to be um, inclusive. So great points. Um, Sebastian, did you want to weigh in before I, we switch to the topic of ageism in brand communications? Yes, thank you so much, Linda. I'm so thrilled and honored to be part of this conversation because like, uh, as, as we were mentioning in our talks before, like, uh, uh, I think the vision is so different when it comes from a European perspective. I was telling uh, you guys uh, the other day that in France, for instance, you can't you know, do stat statistics with race, et cetera, et cetera. So it has pros and cons because, because it doesn't prevent uh, the fact that you, you can still have racism in the society, et cetera, but you can't, you can't ask people what, what the color of their skin is as long as they're French, they're French, and, and, and that's the way it is. Regarding to, to, to brands, uh, actually, I'm going to join Brandy. Uh, because I didn't know about the anecdotes uh, of Sephora in the US, but we've been working with, uh, with Sephora as an agency uh, for the last, I would say, 10 years, I think, <laughs> for Europe. And, and the, late, the latest campaign that we did was, was around this idea of that uh, beauty as an incredible power. Uh, so it's called the unlimited power of beauty. And, and uh, the, the film that we launched actually shows the journey of the woman from a young girl to a, a more aged woman uh, and the questions that she can have when, when it comes to beauty. Is it uh, how people look at me? Is it how I feel inside, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's a very moving uh, film. And it actually happens that it's a black woman, uh, but it's not the center of the communication. She's a black woman, she's a consumer because she's allowed, she's included uh, at Sephora, et cetera. She's a black woman, but she's, she represents uh, the universality of women, you know? And, and this is what I like in, in this commercial. It's, it's not a topic, she's, she's black, that's a fact, but she, she represents the universality of women. And, and this is uh, what I actually like uh, in, in the story that we tell she, she has some universal questions around her beauty, uh, how she's perceived by others, how it can sometimes be a struggle, but she's, she's, she's the woman, like 
you, you can you can be a woman whatever your skin color whatever wherever you come from etc and you still have the same question and this is actually what i love about this uh, this commercial that we did so sephora <laughs> Wow, a lot of love for Sephora today. It reminds me of what Shonda Rhimes said recently is, you know, we will have achieved a new level if people stop saying I'm a black female showrunner and just say I'm a showrunner. And yeah. right, that that captures it all. So Sebastian, I want to turn to you um, on this issue of, of ageism and brand communications, because that was one of the topics that you explored in the recent Havas Group report, a prosumer report called The Future of Aging, and we'll link to the report in our show notes. But according to that report, you found that over half of millennials and boomers would like to see more people age 65 and older in advertising and TV. But and the same number sort of also said that they, they feel the pressure that the advertising and media put on all of us to stay like forever young. Um, and so, you know, how should brands really address these new reality, realities of aging or should they stop targeting by age completely? You know, so, so talk to us a little bit about, about what, you, what you learned. Yeah, so the, I mean, the report was super interesting and we decided actually to, to do the research because we felt uh, that the COVID crisis had, had actually created the generation gap between boomers and millennials. And maybe this could turn into like a, a revolution or a fight between, between the two generations. So we wanted to explore uh, uh, this in, in depth. The first thing that is super interesting is that when, when you actually think about it, the boomers, they invented youth culture, you know, like they say 72% of them, uh, age 60 or 60 plus, tell us that they feel younger than most people their age. And, and uh, when, when you think about it, what is youth culture actually? It's the fact that you consider that youth is not a question of body or physicality, but a state of mind. So I'm, I'm not a, a boomer myself, not yet, but when, when you think about uh, this youth culture, when you think about the who, you know, like uh, talking about my generation, I want to die before I get old. So this is the generation that invented actually the, this fact that we want to stay for forever young. So there's a bit of a paradox uh, to see that half of them say they resent the pressure of advertising and the media to stay forever young because they invented it actually. Uh, and yet when you dig into this, you, you'll see that we mostly talk about aging regarding physical abilities and for women, especially around your face, your wrinkles, how to stay fit, etc. So for, for boomers, when they say that being young is a state of mind, they'd like to be portrayed more around their energy, their freedom of movement, their initiative, and also their contributions to society, because uh, the, as you mentioned, the, the research is global. And we see that in some countries, the wisdom of the elders is actually disconsidered or, or uh, disrespected. And they want to be portrayed as really a good contribution to society. They want to be in the picture. They want to be included in communications. But they don't want ads that are too specifically targeted at them, because um, I don't know if you have the same experience on TV, for instance, when you watch shows uh, in the middle of, of the afternoon, you see so many products that are, that are so 
intentionally targeted at older people, they actually resent this pressure. So they want, the, uh, in the end, we were, we were thinking they want bronze communications to be more universal. So they want to be represented, but they want to be re represented with people from other age groups. Whereas they want product innovation, actually. Product should be adapted to the reality of aging. And of course, when it comes to tech, when it comes to other categories like beauty, et cetera, they want products that are adapted to their reality, but communications should be the, the, the most universal possible for, for them, if it makes sense. That, that makes total sense. And, and I will be honest, like for me, I, um, prior to my, my work in the agency world, I was with a brand and all the, the creatives would come to me and every, uh, you know, all of the, the proposed spokespeople for our advertising were all very, I would say, young and they were all had a certain look. They all looked alike and, and, and typically, you know, very white, very blonde you know, and, and very thin. And I, for most of my life, I've been a woman of substance or curvy. And I, I always felt excluded. And as I've aged, I felt even more excluded. So this has been something really that I've been very focused on about uh, body positivity and, and age. And I think it's presenting, um, you know, to your point, you know, why should there be separate ads for people of a certain age or a certain body type? But create ads that are inclusive, you know, where you're all part, because I, I think you're right, youth is a state of mind. I think we've shifted now to mindset is more of a commonality than our age is, you know, and, and in some cases, like with more gender fluidity as well, that we're thinking less about things in a binary way. And, and so that has to come in the words we choose, right? The, the spokespeople, what they're saying um, and, and the surroundings and the situations we, we, we put people in. So um, I'm looking forward to digging in further um, to the report. Um, Carmela and Brandy, anything to add onto that before we get to our closing round? I would just say that, you know, all of that, what you just said, Sebastian makes a bunch of sense. I mean, in one in five households um, are, at least in the US, are multi-generational households. So it doesn't make sense to isolate by generation when, when people, you know, there is a, a large faction of people who are living with their parents or, you know, uh, millennials and, and Generation Z or they're getting married later. So they're staying living with their parents longer. Uh, people are moving their parents in to take care of them. So it, it doesn't make sense to isolate uh, by age when, when really people can, <laughs> can really, um, they can, it, those messages resonate with them, whether they're for their mom or their grandmom or their child and their, you know, their universal messages. So I, I, I would even apply that um, concept to other aspects of diversity. You know, we, we interact with a, an intersection of people. Um, so why, why segment them? I know it's what we learn in school. We learn about, you know, demographic segmentation and making sure that we talk directly to the consumer we're focusing on. But, uh, you know, as I said in the beginning, our consumers are, and, and whether that's internal or external, are becoming increasingly complex. And they can identify with multiple different types of, of backgrounds and experiences. So, I mean, that, that makes complete sense. And it's a new way of doing things. That's right. Focus on the intersectionalities because we, right, we all have different tribes that we feel comfortable with. And it may be based on, you know, our gender, it may be our race, it could be our religion, it could be our sexual identity, it could be the passions 
that we're involved with. And, but, and so it's looking at us in a, a much more holistic fashion and with all the different hats we wear and ways we, we interact. And one thing I just want to say, um, culturally, Sebastian, um, and Black culture, um, your mom, your grandmother, those who came before you are highly respected and highly revered in Black culture. And when you, when you, go, when you were going through the ageism, I'm thinking, I was thinking to myself, I was like, my mom would never stand for that. My grandma would never <laughs> stand for that. And I would never, like you just don't disrespect those who've come before you, specifically in the black culture. And I've said this for Women's History Month, there are so many women who are the firsts, who have opened doors for so many of us, myself included, to be where I am today to even think about discriminating against them because of their age is, it, it feels to me like it's the, it's the silliest thing to do because if it wasn't for the sacrifices and the challenges they went through, I wouldn't be here. So how dare you ever discriminate against those who paved the way for you? So as you were talking, I was thinking that wouldn't fly in black culture. Like that's the, <laughs> that is not what we do. So, so both to Carmela said, there's a lot of lessons how ageism, how you can apply that culturally, very similar to Hispanic. Tell me someone in the Hispanic culture who doesn't, who isn't afraid of their abuela or abuelita, who, who just, they just don't, it's just things you don't do, right? And so I think there's a connection point here somewhere, Sebastian, that's what, that was the point I wanted to make before we left it, Linda, but I just think culturally, you, you, you know, those of a certain age who are wiser, I just think culturally we would never do that. We just, you just, you don't. <laughs> you just, Carmela, am I, come on, am I, am No, I you are, you are 100%. It's crazy <laughs> because that actually went through my mind too as Sebastian was talking about it. Um, you know, I was really thinking more so from like an economic condition standpoint or even from an yeah, immigration yeah. standpoint. Right. These families, you know, we, we lean on our elders to make a way for us and to make it so that, that we can be successful uh, in our lives. And so it's, it's just culturally, for us, our elders, their their word is Bible, and is you know, their advice is Bible. <laughs> so we really value that, and I, I do think there's a connection point there. What is actually super interesting when you, when you when you, we make this this research in uh, 30 countries, and for instance, there's there are huge differences in, in the way that uh, we we ask kind of provocative questions, you know, like uh, elder elderly people uh, are a burden to society, for instance, and we have very high positive responses in Korea, for instance, where uh, it's hard to, to take care of your, of your senior people, et cetera, et cetera. But it, uh, you're right, it's very culturally different from a country to another, and even from a culture to another. Yeah, all, all great points. Thank you for, for adding them in. Okay, uh, lightning round close. Um, I would love to close by just asking each of you to share maybe one piece of advice to a brand that is just starting on their journey to inclusive communications. Um, Brandy, may I start with you? You may, Linda. My piece of advice, going back, be thoughtful. Ask why. Why are we doing this? What is the why? Make sure that it is um, intentional. Make sure that it is authentic and make sure that it aligns with the very values of what your organization stands for. Great, Sebastian? 
Um, I would actually say do something before you speak, like uh, take a long, deep breath before <laughs> sending out a message uh, in the outside world, because uh, as, as, uh, as I think Brandy was mentioning, like the black square on Instagram is something, but it's surely not enough. Uh, so do something, do more uh, and, and, and do more internally before you start saying something externally. I would, um, I would just magnify what both Brandy and Sebastian said and say, do more uh, and be, be radical in your actions, be open-minded. Um, and, you know, in order to really combat what's, what's become diversity fatigue, include everybody in the conversation because there's going to be some opposing views and it's important to hear all perspectives. Um, and then as Brandy said, you know, align with the values of your organization, hear all the views, hear all the perspectives, uh, but let your actions um, speak to who you are as an organization. Well, on behalf of the Red Havas organization, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, really appreciate your, your insights and your thoughts and, and for what you're doing to help elevate all of us in the communications world. And there's no doubt that what you shared today, which we will magnify through our organization, will help um, take the conversation further. And this won't be the end, but hopefully spark many more conversations among those who are listening to this podcast. Have a great rest of your day. And again, thank you for joining us. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Linda. Now time for the red questionnaire. This segment is featured in every episode of the podcast where we ask the same questions to different guests to understand what inspires them and makes them tick. In this edition of the Red Questionnaire, we welcome Stacey Gandler, Global Managing Director at Red Havas Health. Backed by the Havas Health and You Network, the new Red Havas Health brand will be at the forefront of the changing way we are learning about our own health and that of our loved ones. The new offering brings together health professionals from Red Havas and the broader Havas network across the US, Australia, Singapore, and Vietnam. The new brand is also set to launch in France and Germany soon. Now let's please welcome Stacy Gandler. Stacy, how are you today? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Nancy? Really excited to have you. Really excited um, to talk a little bit more about Red Havas Health, um, our latest announcement uh, that went out earlier in March. Um, and in the press release and in the announcement, Stacey, you talked about focusing on fusing science and culture together. What does that mean and how are we going to do that? Yeah, thanks for asking, Nancy. We're very excited about this new venture, Red Havas Health, as it's an opportunity for our network to solely focus on the different role and journey that health plays in everyone's lives. With recent world events, Health has never been more present in people's thoughts and everyday lives and how they're engaging with content and education and different ways to actively make themselves healthier has never been more important and never quite so present. So we're hoping to create strategies with our clients to connect with all the many different ways that health impacts people's well-being, both physical and mental. It's so exciting. And um, I know you have an ambitious team on uh, this side of the pond and across the globe uh, that's behind you. Awesome, Stacy. Well, let's dig in now to the red questionnaire, if that sounds good to you. Awesome. 
Tell us, what was your first job? In high school, I worked in my hometown library. I have always been an avid reader. Um, it was the best job I had before joining Havas Health and You, I say. <laughs> um, I would get lost in the stacks every single day. Uh, even now, I have multiple books going at once, fiction, nonfiction, biography. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I will say I have never fully taken to reading an ebook though. I really love the feel of holding a book and, and turning the pages. It, you know, call me old school, but it really helps me get lost in the story, that tactile piece of reading. I'll call you sentimental. How's about that? Sorry. Do you still go to the library then? I do. I, I do have a public library card. There's one three blocks from my house and, you know, pre-pandemic, I would try to go by a couple of days. To me, there really is something special about a place where you can take a journey without actually going anywhere. It was, you know, instilled in me by my parents who are teachers at a very, very early age. And um, to support our local libraries, I think is the most, one of the most important ways that we can encourage education for people of all ages. Totally agree. And clearly it still serves you well, that habit um, on your job day to day now. Absolutely. The first thing I do when I get up every day is read. <laughs> Not only to get up to speed to see if there are happenings that are important for my clients to know about, but just to educate myself on what's going on in the world beyond even healthcare, since things are interrelated. You never know where your next best idea is gonna come from, right? No, absolutely. Um, and to that point, you know, we're always looking in for the big idea and where it's gonna come from. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna come just from the health space. So that serves us well, always. You bet. What about, uh, you said the first thing that you do in the morning is read. Um, but what about your sleep habits? Are you an early riser or do you tend to burn the midnight oil? Oh, early riser is the only way for me. Um, I start my day uh, about 6, 6.30 a.m. and uh, work out. I practice yoga and stretch. Um, there's something special for me about being awake before everybody else is awake. The phone is not ringing and the day is still. For me, it's a real gift to start my day in peace and calm and lots of coffee, uh, but it, it really helps me set my intention for uh, a great day and to be focused on the things that we want to accomplish. I love that, to set your intention and to really um, control your own um, mindset as you go into the day before anybody else has any power to interrupt that, right? There's lots going on in the world today. And we're also focused externally on what's happening with uh, world events, our friends, our family, our jobs, you know, there's stimulus coming in from all the place places. So to start by looking inward, I find can have a real centering uh, presence and an opportunity for us to really be balanced, to be able to tackle whatever does come our way. So critical um, and sometimes easier said than done, but balance is certainly <laughs> what we all need to strive for, for sure. 
Stacey, tell me how many stamps are in your passport? Ah, oh, good question. Uh, I have to think on this one. So not counting repeat visits to countries, I have 27 stamps. Uh, wow. Yeah, for, travel is a big part of my life. Um, Pre-pandemic, every year I took one solo trip to a new country. I am a big believer in solo travel and what you gain from it. Um, and I'm really looking forward to when the world goes back uh, for safe travel to be able to pick that up again. So tell me about uh, what you get out of um, solo travel and where will you travel to next once you can? <laughs> yeah, I think about that a lot. I've been doing a lot of daydreaming about my next trip. Um, for me, solo travel was something that I was challenged with as a, a new young professional. I started having to travel um, outside of the US by myself for different client opportunities. And although there were things that were quite scary about it as a, as a young professional, you know, not speaking a language or never being someone mm -hmm. before, it helped me understand and gain a sense of independence, a sense of belief in myself that no matter what came my way, I could find a way to handle it. So right. it, it's even now, X amount of years later, I still find that when I travel by myself, I gain different, different skills. I learn different things about myself. And you know, it, it makes me more open to new experiences. So I highly recommend it to anybody who might be considering it once things are safe. Well, I think that's something that um, someone just getting started in their career can latch onto and embrace um, and mm -hmm. remind themselves of. And ones that have uh, been in the game for a while can certainly relate to and the learnings that we get when we go it alone um, and realize that we're much braver than we realized when we do these things. That's very true, Nancy. So let's move to our next question and tell us who's your favorite social media follow and why. Um, this changes in all transparency. Right now, <laughs> I'm currently obsessed with animals doing things. I don't know if anyone has seen it, but it's basically animals doing fun people things. Um, it's my de-stressor. Uh, it yeah. never fails to make me smile or laugh. I'm especially obsessed with the baby animals. Um, I'm a big animal lover and a big supporter of animal rights and just finding something that is light and easy and happy for me during the day is incredibly important as someone who lives and breathes the news every single day. Um, I find it quite delightful to, to follow something that is just enjoyable and just for pleasure. And this is on Instagram, right? Animals yes. doing things. Yeah. Yes, it is. Brilliant. And I and you are a pet lover and a pet owner, right? You have a dog yourself. <laughs> I do. I do. I have a six-year-old Tibetan terrier named Bailey. His Instagram is at the Bailey Show underscore NYC. Um, a little shout out for Bailey today. Yeah. Bailey is a little bit more active on social media than I am in all honesty, but um, yeah, to, to 
give voice to animals who don't have a voice themselves and just are there for love and joy is it just incredibly important to me. So it, it's animals rights are one of the causes that I support. Certainly admirable. Um, tell me, Stacy, what headlines grabbing your attention? If we read up on anything this month, what should it be? Yeah, um, I would encourage everybody to educate themselves about the current food insecurity crisis. It's unfathomable to me that we cannot find ways to ensure everybody has enough nutrition to survive and really thrive. Um, the pandemic has made this incredibly worse. And to know that there are people in our own backyards that are suffering is just um, incredibly sad and awful to me. Uh, National Geographic recently published a piece on food insecurity in America that puts a real face on these harsh realities and offers some great options for people who are able to help. So I, I would really encourage people to check that out if they have some time and interest. Yeah, thanks for calling that out. And we'll be sure to put that in the show notes for everybody to reference. So then tell me, Stacey, um, we always say cliches are cliches for a reason. So what's your favorite one? Uh, every cloud has a silver lining. Uh, I have been called Pollyanna by many a friend and colleague uh, throughout my lifetime. I just believe it's always best to look for the good. There's enough bad stuff floating around. Let's try to make everything something we can learn from and grow from. I think that's so valuable, uh, whether people are living in a big city like New York or Chicago or the World Wide Web that we know never sleeps. Um, people always feel like they need to keep up, but really what's so essential is finding that balance. And like you said, slowing down. I couldn't agree more, Nancy. Uh, I have a saying that comes from my grandmother and she said, sometimes you need to slow down to go fast. Things are so crazy in the world these days. And I'm hopeful that if we all take pause and center ourselves and breathe a bit, we can find our way together and look forward to what comes next. Well, I think those are words of wisdom. Thanks to you and your grandma for sharing that with us. I think it would behoove us all to slow down so we can speed up. Stacy, that was perfect. We're really excited and thrilled to have you join us for the Red Questionnaire. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you for joining the Red Sky Fuel for Thought podcast. We hope you'll join us again for more of the latest communications insights and trends from the team at Red Havas. Please make sure to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And don't forget to rate and review today's show. We'd love to hear from you.